0: ...historical issues concerning the entire African world. Addressing how African people are participating in globalization. Ways in which the rest of the world continues to exploit African resources. Uncovering labor violations by corrupt politicians and Western government powers. Learn what's happening now in interviews with artists, activists, scholars, and a host of other experts each episode. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Africa Now is also available on iTunes podcast, Google Play Music, as well as SoundCloud on your station for jazz and justice. WPFW Washington.
1: On January 8th, 2024 the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition appeared before the Maryland Supreme Court to continue its fight against Montgomery County to reclaim stolen burial ground. Critical to the coalition's fight has been its steadfast legal team. Today, we will get an update on that fight, excuse me, from Jenny Colgate of BACC's legal team. Imagine approaching a public official running for the US Senate about an issue that is important to you and being told Oh, no one cares about that. That's exactly what happened when BACC's president and What's at Stake host, Dr. Marsha Coleman-Adebayo, introduced herself to U.S. Senatorial candidate David Trone. Here to discuss deeper the meaning of that encounter is Singh Horbe, first assistant president general of the UNIA ACL Rehabilitating Committee, 2020 government. On Saturday, March 2nd, the Poor People's Campaign will take to the streets in Maryland and nationwide, the people's demands for this nation's government to respond to the issues and needs of poor and low wealth people. Linnell Fall and David Mott of the Maryland Poor People's Campaign will talk about that march and action. Stay tuned. Good morning and welcome to What's at Stake. I'm your host, Denise Young, filling in for Dr. Marsha Coleman out of Bayou, and we are with you the fourth Wednesday of each month. We have a packed show, and you will not want to miss a second of it. So we're going to jump right to it. At this time, I'd like to welcome Jenny Colgate of the BACC legal team. Welcome Jenny. Thank you, Denise, happy to be here. Wonderful to have you. So we have such committed followers, and every month we are gaining new listeners. For those new to this
2: segment, please summarize what the Moses Cemetery case is. Sure. Um, So the Moses Cemetery is a cemetery that exists on two parcels in Bethesda, Maryland, Um, and it's just two pieces of land. It's known as Parcel 175 and Parcel 177. Um, and the Moses African Cemetery is a cemetery that was created back in the time when Bethesda wasn't, you know, the, the town that we know of today. It was four plantations. Um, and after emancipation, the um, area known as the River Road Community became an African-American community. The Moses African Cemetery was created and slaves and descendants of slaves were buried in that cemetery. What the legal case is about is what's known as parcel 175. And in the 1960s, Westwood Towers, an apartment complex was built atop of that parcel and the parking lot for that apartment complex was was directly over the cemetery. And the case is about the sale of that property or the proposed sale of that property by the now owner, HOC, Montgomery County Housing and Opportunities Commission, and they had proposed to sell it to a developer. And the case was brought because there's a law that says you need to bring an action in a court of equity and allow a court of equity to preside over if the sale can happen. And so that's what the case is about. Okay, <clears throat> so you mentioned um, that there was um,
1: an apartment complex. I don't think we would have called it a complex at that time, but <laughs> in the '60s, um, and so apartment complex was probably my word. Um, but in the '60s, it was built over um, the the cemetery, and so I want to I want to just have two points of clarity. One, that that means that in fact we have been desecrating or or they the powers that be that have been desecrating this cemetery this sacred ground i'm a i'm a 60s baby so i'm going to tell my age for at least 50 years and then the second um again as a point of clarification that in fact there has there was not the proper communication with the um um uh, the stakeholders um, in terms of moving forward with any sale and, and obvious
2: desecration. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, every time a car parks on top of that cemetery, that's desecration. And that's what happens every day. Cars park atop, but people don't even realize that there are people buried underneath it. And yet the courts have found that there's absolutely a cemetery there and even though HOC has appealed, you know, there, there have now been two appeals, the factual findings from the trial court were never appealed. So it's uncontested that there are bodies buried beneath that parking lot and they are desecrated every day by people parking atop them. And, and absolutely, the, the procedure was never followed. You know, so under the law that exists, and it's existed since 1968, um... The, the, or 1868, sorry, the original predecessor mm-hmm. statute, every time there was a sale for non-burial use, there should have been an action brought in a court of equity. And the court of equity should have determined if the sale could happen and if so, under what conditions. And no, no court of equity would have allowed the bodies to remain under that parking lot and continue to have cars park atop it.
1: Amazing. Okay, so this has been quite the legal struggle for BACC, as you know. So on October 25th, 2021, Judge Carla N. Smith ruled in the case of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition and Descendants versus the Housing Opportunities Commission that, quote, The court cannot ignore that plaintiffs, African-Americans, are seeking to preserve the memory of their relatives and those with whom they share a cultural affiliation. Nor can the court ignore that as early as the 1930s when construction began in the River Road community, the deceased have been forgotten, forsaken, and their final resting places destroyed or at a minimum desecrated. So determined to hold on to that which they should not own and sanctimoniously desecrate, the HOC in October 2022 appealed Judge Carla's ruling at the Maryland Court of Appeals. So Jenny, can you please explain that ruling which led to BACC appealing to the Maryland Supreme Court?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the trial court's ruling found that that, uh, HOC did have to bring an action in a court of equity in order to sell the property for non-burial use and as part of her opinion it was a very long and very detailed opinion she had to make factual findings on is there a burial ground there? Is it in the public interest to issue a writ of mandamus? And so part of the language that you are reading were part of her factual findings and she had you know, excellent, detailed, factual findings um, that, again, were never appealed. So when HOC appealed to the Intermediate Appeals Court in Maryland, they appealed the legal issues, um, namely the, the main one being is this statute that we're saying they have to, you know, follow in order to bring this action, is it mandatory or is it permissive? Is it something they can follow? but they don't have to. And they're arguing and argued that it was the latter. It's something they can follow and they don't have to. And the benefit of following it would be they would get quiet title, but if they don't care about quiet title, they don't have to bring the action. Um, and so that was the main basis for the appeal. And again, none of the factual findings they appealed. So all of the horrific things that have happened to that property, and the fact that there is a burial ground that's continued to be desecrated, that is uncontested.
1: So um, I, I have to say the the language between, or I guess you know, the differentiation between something being mandatory um, or permissive um, is um, it's 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 a little bit. Um, I guess the word I want to. Want to use to, to be, um, it, you know, it, it. It sounds as if, particularly when you are talking about um, the power dynamics that are very obvious in this case, <clears throat> um, that it that the decision to argue on whether something is mandatory or permissive versus the facts of the case really sounds like exercising what we see uh, um, this country is predicated on, and that is racism, oppression, and just simply not having to recognize the humanity of African-Americans. Um,
2: how, how was our legal team able to speak to that? There's actually a, a legal principle that goes to exactly that point, which is That in some sense, the law says, you know, may means may, it's permissive, and shall means, you know, must, you have to do it. But, and and the statute here does say may, but, and the principle is that if the thing that you're authorizing is in the public interest, then may usually means shall. And that's exactly the case here right? Because this is in the public interest. This is a situation where, you know, the African Americans have been oppressed since the time they were brought to this country against their will. And, and that goes to Judge Smith's findings, right? I mean, there has been oppression, there has been desecration, and this is clearly in the public interest. And because of that, that was one of the, the main reasons we argued before the Maryland Supreme Court that the court should reinstate the trial court's finding that in this case may means must and they must bring an action um, you know to to seek permission to sell the property and and on the conditions that a sale could happen yeah it just you know when we were talking about the the the
1: may and must shall and etc i just cannot imagine that um, you know, a, a a white community would ever have um, its government or its agencies or, or representatives look at it and say, "Oh no, that's okay. We we we, we don't have to do it. So we're not going to do it." Like, I, especially when we're talking specifically about um, it, what is really considered sacred among you know any culture, and that is burial grounds.
2: When so. You're- your, your point there is an interesting one, and it actually goes to one of the other reasons we argued, um, that the may mean shall, and that, that's on the sacred point. The, you know, across all religions and all people, burial grounds are sacred. And there were laws that actually predated the 1868 original statute that we're moving under that said that religious groups and institutions could never sell a burial ground. Ever. Once it was a burial ground, it had to remain a burial ground forever. And so when the 1868 statute was passed, part of that was to say that now you can sell a burial ground for non-burial use if you bring this action. And that's another reason why, you know, may, may means permissive unless something was previously prohibited, you know? And, and this goes back to like elementary school days, you know, you can't go into the hall you can't right. do it. Well, now you, you may if you have the hall pass. Well, you can do it then, you you know, you yeah. have the permission. Um, yeah. So that's something that, you know, just basic logic should make sense to people. And that's exactly the facts here. This is something that was prohibited.
1: I, I love that analogy, Jenny. Okay, so let me ask you this. So we BACC and I keep saying we because actually I'm a member of BACC. <laughs> it was not a foregone conclusion that BACC's case would appear before the Maryland Supreme Court. Can you tell us why that is?
2: Yeah, so only about 15 percent of appeals are taken up by the Maryland Supreme Court, and so you have to file a petition and convince the court um, that the interests or that the uh, case is one of you know public interest that it's one of first impression. Um, and we obviously were able to check all of those boxes with this case. Um, you know, the, the issue we were raising was one that the court had never decided before. For the reasons we've talked about, it's clearly in the public interest. Um, and so the court did take our case, and they actually seemed to express great interest in it because of the two questions that we presented, they modified the second question. And so we thought that was a really good sign that they were very interested in our issue.
1: Okay, so related to this, you said the modification of your question, so what was BACC's essential argument and did
2: it differ from previous arguments? Um, so we, didn't, we did not do the first appeal. I mean, we, we opposed it. Um, so we won at the trial court and HOC appealed and then we appealed the intermediate court's finding because the intermediate court had reversed. So our questions were the first time we were the ones coming up with the questions presented. Um, And they didn't differ. The first question was spot on with everything that had been argued before. And that, I don't have the question in front of me, but it was essentially, is business regulation 5505, which is the statute we've been talking about, mandatory? um, Or is it permissive? You know, it's a permissive quiet title statute in the alternative. The second question was sort of another flavor of that um, and we had not presented it in that flavor before but the issue had been raised and that was whether even if 5505 the statute didn't require an action in the court of equity did Maryland common law and particularly a supreme court case of the United States called Beatty versus Kurtz did it require HOC to bring an action in a court of equity to sell the property um, so it was two questions, both getting at the same resolution, just asking the court whether a statute required it or the common law required it.
1: Jenny, it occurred to me when you said that the Supreme Court really took an interest in this case that, um, and obviously, disclaimer, I'm not a legal mind at all, but it it suggests to me that it is quite possible that they have interest in this case because one we as even though BACC's case specific to the cemetery and its origins etc is a little bit unique the issue of dispossession of land The dispossession of the sacred grounds from African-Americans nationwide is not a unique case. So I'm wondering, um, do you think that they are looking at that possibly because of the um, really the the extended um, um, impact that this can have um, across the country?
2: Yes, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And, and that's an argument that we did make, um, in our cert petition for why they should take the case. There is an organization in Florida, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but they compile, um, the African-American, and I think Native American also, cemeteries that are being, you know, desecrated and forgotten, especially where there are unmarked graves. If you, once you hear this radio show, you'll start seeing it pop up everywhere in the news. Um, It's just, you know, it's amazing how often this issue is presented. And so, yeah, I think the Maryland Supreme Court obviously is interested in, you know, addressing an issue that's going to recur. And also that's, you know, they have the, the ability to set the law that the rest of the country could follow. You know, so everyone's watching. What are they going to do? So when should we expect a decision? The end of the term is August 31st. Of this year so anytime between now and August 31st probably sometime in the summer (laughs) okay okay so in the interim or
1: during that waiting period how can the public support this this legal battle how can the the public support BACC and even support other communities um, and organizations that may be
2: facing the same thing I mean I think BACC does a number of efforts this case is just one of them um and so I think communities you know or individuals can get involved in groups like BACC or get involved in BACC um and just paying attention to the issues you know when like we were talking about you know these cemeteries are being desecrated all the time there was just a military forget exactly what military base it was, but they discovered that there was a burial ground underneath that. And they're looking into that. And so I think paying attention to the issue, expressing an interest in the issue. Um, one of the arguments that we've made throughout the case is that this case is not just about the descendants of the people buried in Moses African Cemetery. And it's not just about BACC. It's about the public. You know, if we allow these cemeteries to be desecrated and wiped out, what are our children going to learn from? Um, and so I think to the extent the community shows an interest in that from, you know, just sort of a historical and an educational perspective as well, that supports the cause.
1: You know, um, any ethnic studies um, professor would likely say to the public, um, that when we consider the genocides of um, indigenous people and um, African stolen Africans, that we are likely looking at our entire nation um, being a burial ground. And so, I I really reinforce and reiterate um, to our public, to our listeners, please, please, please pay attention to these um, these issues, and you know, across communities, be supportive. Um, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I would also like to acknowledge the entire BACC legal team, Lead Attorney Steve Lieberman, Jennifer Simcoe, Kristen Logan, and D. Lawson Allen. Again, thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you, Denise. It was a pleasure. Okay, continuing to move along. As our audience can can surmise from the interview with the BACC legal team, Moses African Cemetery matters to BACC, the descendant community it represents, and its supporters globally. So even if it does not matter to Congressman and Senate candidate David Trone, Baba Bay joins us today to discuss this sentiment. Welcome, Baba Bay.
3: Yes, welcome and good morning and good morning to your listeners. And it's always a pleasure being here. Uh, I'm going to speak truth to power because, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that.
1: (laughs) Well, that's exactly why we invited you to join us. So, But first, I would like to get just clarification. Um, Do you... Um, do you want us to, or want me to reference you or, or invite you into this space as Singor Bay or as a uh, Baba Singor or you it tell me.
3: It doesn't matter, but Singor Baye, but it does not matter. Baye, thank
1: yeah. you. No, we we need, we need to be right. We're family. So we need to be right how we, how we bring each other into this space. So Baba Singor, um, When we look at this issue, um, and and I have to really take a moment to um, sort of collect myself because of the, really, what is the audacity to be um, unceremoniously dismissed, um, we we experience that on a daily basis. However, I must admit, there are some times that when it happens, we are not prepared for it because you just don't think that is going to happen in this moment. But before I, we examine that, I would like for you to just take a minute to tell our listeners who you are.
3: Good. Uh, Well, I'm single. I'm third-generation born uh, here in Washington, D.C. Of course, my father was born in Montgomery County, but I was in D.C. Uh, I'm a grandfather, I've been around a long time, I've been an activist in many movements, but right now I currently work with the UNIA, the Garvey Movement, the UNIA ACL, and we call ourselves the Rehabilitating Committee today because we know we need to be rehabilitated, not just as an organization, but a government, but all of us need to be rehabilitated because you can see what's happening in the world. So in short, I've been in that movement for a while. Of course, we are members uh, in the coalition with Bach uh, because we believe in respecting our ancestors and respecting ourselves. Uh, so I, I just keep it plain like that. Uh, You know, uh, WPFW is aware of my voice. I've been around since WPFW <laughs> came into existence. I really appreciate WPFW. And I love Marsha and Reverend Adebayo, who are also active members of our local division. I serve as first assistant president general, but I served eight years as the president general. But it's not about me, he or she. It's about we collectivity. And we need to be humble servants when we get into leadership.
1: Okay, well, first of all, on behalf of WPFW, thank you for that shout out to WPFW. It absolutely is one of the most, if not the most, important um, Black cultural, multicultural institution in the Washington, D.C. area. So, I'm gonna re-take a minute to read something to you. So BACC issued a media and community alert on January 16, describing Dr. Coleman-Atebayo's interaction with Representative Trone, who again is running as a Democratic candidate for US Senate. In the alert, Dr. Coleman-Atebayo writes, quote, on January 11th after a MLK, excuse me, Martin Luther King, because I really hate that. um, (laughs) I really don't like using that acronym. After a Martin Luther King Jr. program in Anne Arundel County, BACC member Dr. Marsha Adebayo approached Senate candidate Representative David Trone to give him a leaflet concerning the desecration of Moses African Cemetery in Bethesda, Maryland. He refused to take a leaflet. Instead, he dismissively noted that he or someone was giving a million dollars to a black school. When asked what a donation to a black school had to do with the desecration of Moses African Cemetery, he dismissively declared, quote, who cares about that little cemetery, End quote. So Baba Singor, is this indicative of why black folk had to shout from every valley, every mountaintop, that black lives matter? Or is this a simple case of of carelessness of thought and word, and not knowing the issue? And as we have come to expect, white politicians kind of existing in their whiteness, or both.
3: Well, let me let me just say it like this, uh, dear. First of all, no person at no time should be disrespectful and lack integrity when addressing, particularly black women. So I want to make that very clear. No person. Now, here is someone running for, uh, for Senate, and it's got a lot of money, and it happens to be white, disrespecting a black woman. We, that's unacceptable in our community, and that's unacceptable anywhere. And I want to make it very clear. It's, it's, it's a lack of integrity. How can somebody be a leader and be so rude and disrespectful to a black woman? And see, we, we in the UNIA, we know black women are rising up all over around the world. And we understand that we as black men and, in fact, everybody should respect women in general and definitely women who are in leadership and certainly black women who are in leadership. Now, he doubled down, too, and got really, really rude and disrespected our our ancestral children, girls. I mean, and and, and I'm not accepting the fact he did not know. So, no, if you're running for something you did not know, that's a big problem, too. So if he was if he was ignorant of the situation, that's problematic to vote for him. Now, the fact of the matter that that the way he disrespected Sister Marsha, I don't think he understands clearly the community that Sister Marsha represents. Not only Bach, but the general community, mm-hmm. uh, all people. So yes. how could you vote? How could you vote for somebody that disrespects a black woman in that way? and does not come with an apology. So we encourage people to sign a petition. And if, you, if you're gonna vote, uh, vote your conscience, but don't vote for nobody who does not have integrity and does not respect dead bodies, period.
1: Understood, understood. So Representative Trone um, is a Democrat. Um, In the BACC alert, they asked the question, quote, why do black people keep supporting white politicians who demean and disrespect black people, end quote. Assuming the interaction um, occurred, as Dr. Coleman Adebayo describes, and we at BACC, her supporters um, throughout the community, we have not a fraction of one reason to believe that it occurred any other way, just for the record. Um, What does this say about Black folks' relationship with the Democratic Party, or maybe even more broadly, our relationship with um, liberal white America and their organizations and institutions?
3: Well, first of all, you got you got to vote. You got to vote for somebody. Uh, that's a fact, okay? And we have a long history of being paid off. I'm not being paid off, literally, yeah. to support candidates, whether or not it's Democratic or Republican. So I'm gonna speak truth to power again as a Garveyite. Do not support someone who practices monopoly capitalism and does not have respect for basic life, or you know, uh, past life or current life. Whether you're in the Democratic Party and some people call it the Democratic Party, and I just want to keep it real, or whether right. or not, you're with the Republican Party, some people call that the Reptilian Party. But you do have to vote. So we need to hold these politicians accountable to the things that they should represent in helping uplift our community. So it's a, it's a tough one because. You know, if you look at the history of the Republican Democratic Party, you know we we've, we've been supportive of both parties throughout history. But we need to be very cautious and careful about supporting someone who cannot even have the decency and integrity to respect a black woman.
1: Okay. Singhor, excuse me, Baba Singhor. I'm going to hold that thought on accountability so that we can take a station break. You're listening to What's at Stake on WPFW, and we'll be right back after the station break. I testify. Sophie's Parlor is the original woman's radio collective. Wednesdays from 3 to 5 p.m. The best music divas on radio at 89.3 FM and sophiesparlor.blogspot.com.
4: The Secure D.C. Crime Bill is likely to be passed by D.C. City Council on January 23rd. Legislation that will allow police to detain and identify people for fare evasion, stop people from mask wearing if they believe they're quote-unquote suspicious, create quote-unquote drug-free zones that make gathering in certain areas illegal for up to five days and make possible more impunity for police. Join PACA, Pan-African Community Action, on Wednesday, January 24th for the Assata-Sokor Study Group session, the D.C. Crime Bill and the War on Chocolate City, where we will unpack the implications of this crime bill and discuss how community control is the democratic path to adequate solutions for addressing the root causes that lead to crime, poverty, addiction, food insecurity, inadequate housing, and capitalist exploitation. That's the D.C. Crime Bill and the War on Chocolate City, Wednesday, January 24th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Black Workers and Wellness Center, 2500 martin luther king jr avenue southeast dc there is an online option to find out more go online to paka slash events wpfw is your station for jazz and justice building a better world one broadcast at a time Welcome back.
1: You're listening to What's at Stake on WPFW, and we are here with Baba Singhor in this enthralling conversation. So, Baba Singhor, um, you know the this, the the comment in the community and media alert that went out, where. Um, Representative Trone allegedly says um, something about um, he or someone was giving a million dollars to a black school. It reminds me of a story that a community activist told me about um, the church that she attends, a multicultural Episcopal church, and they were having, you know, as part of their social justice committee uh, meeting, this person mentioned that they wanted to really do look at some specific issues you know, sort of supporting equity and, and looking, really look at, looking at what's happening in the um, African-American community. And one of the um, white male um, members said, well, is there, you know, I've already given to the homeless. What else, what else do I need to do? And so, you know, I, I'm reminded of that um, statement or that story because, um, you know, there there so often is this idea that when I'm um, I mean, I'm putting in, you know air quotes helping African Americans, there is this sort of this one and done kind of approach. Well, I did that, so shouldn't that be enough, right? And and what do what what do you think that's predicated on? Where where does that come from? You don't really see that in, you don't see that. No one says to, you know, an Asian community or the white community, oh, well, I've already done that. So be happy.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's escaping the reality, you know. And like I said, you don't mix oranges with apples. Yeah. And it's good that you give, but you should not give based on, you know, uh, trying to use that as a means of justifying where you are totally. Off the mark, if you hear what I'm saying, and 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 that's important. And I just keep it real so people understand. You know, thank you. Great, 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 great you gave. That got nothing to do with you know our our cemetery. That has nothing to do with that. So you know, it, it was a matter of him uh, arrogant, being arrogant, and being being elusive, and uh, disrespectful. You know, because yeah. uh, because 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 I mean, we're not going to say, well, you shouldn't have gave to the school. Of course, get to the school. You should. That's that's what you should be doing if you got money, <laughs> and he's got money. Okay, right. he's not right. he's not one of them poor politicians. He's a rich politician. So let's okay. let's be very clear. He was definitely uh, showing a lot of arrogance and a lot of disrespect there.
1: Yeah. And it also occurs to me that when, you know, people um, when, you know, people with power, people with money, uh, white people, white liberals, when they when they throw that around, oh, I've done this. You know, it's also uh, uh, to me very obvious that they are not um, willing to really uh, to to address the systemic issues like, you know, thank you for the money for the school. But if you're looking and in, in, in not trying to make a comparison about, you know, the need for a school um, versus really looking at, you know, this supporting this, this cemetery, but what we're looking at um, specifically with this cemetery really is about um, land dispossession and this um, manipulation of, of policy, of government, um, um, you know legislation, and um, and so when you are able to address that with integrity, when when we start to really look at examine very closely um, our 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 policies and how they are implemented, w- even how they're constructed, then we're really trying to get at the core of of systemic change. But I, I want to also uh, sort of come back to the uh, point about accountability. So. Uh, You know, again, going back to this media alert that BACC um, sent out, it demanded that Representative Trone meet with the black community to explain his alleged racist comment as it, um, you know, they tried to educate him on Moses African Cemetery, uh, which is, quote, Moses African Cemetery located in Bethesda, Maryland, is the site of an atrocity that occurred during slavery where thousands of African children and adults were murdered, raped, had their lives stolen on the altar of white supremacy called slavery. This population laid the foundation for the wealth of white settlers in modern-day Montgomery County, end quote. So again, going back to accountability, we know that Montgomery County Executive Mark Elridge who barely won his last bid and and did so by less than 40 votes has been one of the major champions of the desecration of Moses African Cemetery. So we have Elrich and now we have Trone on the heels of um, not that particular office, but on the heels of wanting black supporters to help get him into office. Why do black people keep electing white candidates who act in opposition to the welfare and health of black people? Like, How do we start to change our voting behavior?
3: Yeah, well, I, I, as I told you, I'm gonna speak truth to power. We got a lot of our own black people who act just like the system of white supremacy.
4: Mm-hmm. And that's
3: very important if you haven't studied Francis Cress Wilson. So uh, we're not anti-anybody. Even the Garvey movement, we're not anti-anyone. Uh, right. we, anti but we definitely have to hold our own selves accountable. You know, and that that voters need to be held accountable. Individual voters need to be held accountable for who they vote for, because in the analysis, you know, uh, the effects or or the lack of effect uh, or or positive to our community is going to affect all of us. So I want to make it real clear. Anybody, even if Trump was a black man, the same thing I'm saying would apply. I want to make that very clear. No one, no one can get off the hook of being accountable. And we in the Garvey movement are very clear that we know that we come from a great stock and we know that if we rise up to our true selves, nothing, not even the system of white supremacy can stop us from following our reason we were created. So I wanna make it real clear, black, white, green or gray, you never as a politician should disrespect a black woman and specifically don't respect disrespect children. And And let me close on this one. If you can give money to a school then that means you should be giving money to help support the cemetery. Mm-hmm. As simple as that. Or it's not. It, it's not. It's not real. You're right. paying someone. You're you're giving that donation or that contribution so that people will give you a vote, not out of the out of your heart. And that's the same thing would apply for a black politician. I want to make that real clear to you because sometimes our people get confused. We, right. We're we're much of the problem too by our in apathy. So we. Right. Need to, Get up and do something. All of us need to be held accountable.
1: I love, I love, I love that point about accountability. We as voters have to be accountable. And then we also have to hold the people that we elect um, accountable, not when they get in office, but before they get in office. I think that's the mistake that we make. Oh, we know their history, but once they get in office, then, we, you know, we'll really hold their feet to the fire. And it does not work like that. Baba Singh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Much love. Okay. WPFW family, listeners, we are on fire this morning. And our final guests are also going to bring the heat. Welcome, Linnell Fall and David Mott of Maryland Poor People's Campaign. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Good morning.
1: Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so Linnell and David. First, um, please tell our listeners what is the Maryland Poor People's Campaign and why is this organization critical to the state of Maryland?
5: The Maryland the poor, uh, the poor People's Campaign is a national call for moral revival. This, camp, this organization has been in existence over 55 years. Dr. King and his wife, Coretta Scott King, started this a long time ago, but the mission continues. Reverend William J. Barber II is our co-lead, and also Dr. Reverend Theo Harris is our co-lead. And it launched in 2018 with a historic wave of nonviolent civil disobedience and a campaign that addresses the interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty and ecological devastation, the denial of healthcare, militarism and the war economy, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. There are over 140 million people and low wealth people in this country, including 2.174 million in Maryland. 31.1% between the uh, time of 2018 and 2020. And it doesn't have to be this way we are building a movement to change this country and the state of Maryland. We're drawing on the history of a fusion movement, the Poor People's Campaign. We have over 38 state coordinating committees, over 200 partners or, or, or more. We have thousands and thousands of religious leaders bringing together the nation's 140 million poor low income people. We are nonpartisan, partisan gender, uh, uh, We we cross all races, abilities, religions, gender, sexual orientation, organized labor, advocates, activities, and other people conscious, that are conscious, okay, to seek to address the injustices and revive the heart and soul of our democracy with an agenda rooted in the need and priorities of 140 million people as the deepest constitutional and moral values. Okay. Poor
1: People's Campaign. <laughs> I, OK, I'm feeling you on that. So this is what I want to I want to come back to, though, Miss Linnell. Yes,
5: ma'am.
1: We particularly in Montgomery County. Right. That number. Can you repeat that number of of I, I said I think you said poor and low wealth people
5: yeah, in 137.1%. Maryland? Thirty seven point one percent in the state of Maryland a poor and low income in anchor. the
1: state of Maryland when you yes. have Montgomery County when you have um PG County when you have what's the what's the county that now has surpassed um PG County as the um what is what's now the richest county is it um in Maryland I'm and I'm it is. I, I think it's
0: Montgomery County
1: it, but it's second it's well I mean it's oh, okay. second too yeah what's I I don't know. Is it it, it St. Charles?
5: Yes.
1: So we we have been boasting, the state of Maryland Mm -hmm. has been boasting about having the, you know, some of the richest counties, not just in Maryland, but in the entire United States of America. And we have how much poverty or how, what's the percentage again? 37.1%
5: 37.1% and counting.
1: Oh, and mm-hmm. we should, and we should, We and so that in and of itself is reason for why this organization is critical to the state of Maryland. So, uh, so Linnell and David, what led you to become involved and to take on leadership roles in the Maryland Poor People's Campaign?
5: I had a, um, issue with, um, uh, care. I had COVID with pneumonia and, um, I lost my job, I lost my health care, I lost my car, almost lost my home. I was very, very ill. And I saw this wave coming through, I was on the internet and I decided to make a commitment. I've always been committed to my community out of of Philadelphia, I was a committee woman. I've worked um, tirelessly for my community and I was a part of the Poor People's Campaign in Pennsylvania. So I've always been active in my community. But I was outraged at the way I was treated, at the at the way that my treatment was was given to me. And uh, and uh if I had um had um I'm sorry, if they had um excuse me, I'm I'm can't okay. remember, but um I went to uh the White House and spoke with uh, Reverend Barber and Reverend Theo Harris to speak to Bernie Sanders about um extended um, um so yeah. Pay lead. Lead.
1: yes. And
5: I and I asked them to, you know, if if I had that, I wouldn't have been had the conditions and had to go go through. I would have been able to keep my health care, keep my um finances. You know, I wouldn't have had to go straight straight down to the bottom. You know, and use all of my savings, okay, to survive yeah. in the country in the richest country in the world. It was it was really a horrible situation. That's why I decided to stand up, speak out, and fight against these injustices, David.
0: Yeah, for me, it was, um, I'm a retired organizer, union organizer with the Service Employees International Union. When I retired, I still had, believe it or not, still had energy and wanted to make a commitment. And um, I had heard about the Poor People's Campaign and just the way that it approached and focuses on poverty, on raising up not just the issue of poverty, but raising up the voices and the experiences of people who are affected by it just moved me. And the fact that it it includes in this in its analysis, you know, uh, you, you know the impacts of racism, ec- you know, ecological devastation, whether it's you know a, an incinerator plant in a poor community, or whether it's climate change, you know, and militarism, how we're spending, mm-hmm. we are, you know, we're we spent over six trillion dollars in Iraq and Iran, and nobody blinked an eye. We are mm-hmm. spending billions, billions to Israel to fight. Uh, 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 the Palestinians, and you know, another billions in Yugoslavia, and and we uh, not, but in 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 um, Ukraine. Ukraine, and you can say you you can argue that all oh, that's right. Maybe we should be doing it. Maybe not. But when it comes to fighting poverty, all of a sudden we have scarcity. Well, right. I don't know right. why we got scarcity when we got nineteen billionaires in Maryland alone, right? Why are we yeah. fighting? Why are we talking about scarcity? So I thought that was really moving. They had a very, you know, we have a very, I think, tight analysis. And we are calling on people to be poverty abolitionists. And that moved me.
1: Oh, I, I love that term, term poverty abolitionists. But, you know, when you talk about, and I think most of us can, um, you know, just in terms of math. Um, I don't I don't know what a million dollars looks like and feels like. I mean, I understand math. But here's what I'm really sure. And I think a lot of people, you hear the million dollars a lot, you know, somebody won a lot of million dollars. But here's what I'm. I'm willing to bet is that I really don't think that people understand how many millions you need to get to a billion right. and how many billions you need to get to a trillion. So this idea that we have this, Money, like money, is not even is even isn't even adequate mm-hmm. to um, describe how the the amount that we are spending in ways that you know. Yes, you said you know maybe we should be doing it or maybe we shouldn't be doing it. I mean, it, you know, and I think. Um, what, if we're looking specifically at militarism, the answer is probably no, we shouldn't be doing it because it goes again to extracting resources. It goes uh, um, to this idea of land dispossession and, um, and war and warmongering, etc. The idea that we can go from that billions, trillions to, as you said, scarcity To Mm -hmm. deal with the basic needs of people here in this country is criminal and it is immoral. It is Mm -hmm. absolutely immoral. So let me ask you this. What is the uh, Maryland Poor People's Campaign, for example, um, doing in terms of its action and its um, activism um, related to poverty?
5: We have a policy committee within our organization that has created an end of poverty resolution. It is a powerful resolution. We have taken this resolution for the last, since 2023, and now bringing it also forward in 2024, we have had, we have gone to the White House. We, it has been introduced into Congress, um, and it is a bill, it is a bill. And um, we, that was done by in June um, 19, 2023. We went to our legislators. We spoke to each. We had over three to 4,000 people go mm. to speak before their legislators and make demands for the states in which they lived in. And to say that we, we are tired, we are fed up with your poverty policies when over yes. 295 million people per year die from from the fourth leading cause of death, which is poverty. Yes. We have over um, 800 yes, people do. die per day from poverty in the United States of America. This is outrageous. This mm-hmm. is outrageous. And mm-hmm. something has to be done about this because in the richest country in the world, you can't even imagine, you know, having this kind of of, of dysfunctional system when we have legislators who produce who produce weekly, monthly, daily, yearly um, poverty policies, death policies, policies that are undoing the evils, that are not undoing the evils of our age. And they are rampant. We have serious moments of disengagement. Our legislators are not on our side. They are not helping us. They are not helping poverty. They are not helping the poor. It is... Just giving uh, uh, um, band aids. We have a, this, the food stamps have dropped twenty ninety to two hundred and fifty dollars from from people's households. People are hungry here. People are fighting to survive. People don't have housing. They don't have enough money. They are working three jobs and exhausted. It is a very serious matter in f- from the north the northern part of Maryland the southern part of Maryland, the eastern part of Maryland, the western part of Maryland. Our people are crying out, our seniors, our children, our mothers, our fathers. Something needs to be done. And this movement is on the move and we are asking everyone to join with us hand in hand to take advantage of the disadvantages that have taken place and then we're going to the polls. And we need to get rid of these legislators who do not work for us, do not help us, and yes. have created an, a, a, a massive mess in this city and so in this country. And this so country. if I Thank could
0: you. just add one thing to what Linnell said, and it's a, it is it is this, uh, and what she said is absolutely right on. And he, what I call just this deadly complacency, yes. right? That when we had, when the midst of the COVID crisis, bosses you know, corporate, and you know, all got real nervous because things were starting to fall apart. Right. So as a result, and with good intentions on the part of people who were fighting for it, we put in COVID benefits. Right. People remember that mm-hmm. unemployment benefits were increased. Employers were paid to keep people on the job. Food stamps and other food um, benefits were paid directly to people. Uh, people were put on the Medicaid rolls to make sure they had health insurance dur- during this crisis. Yes, it, yes, yes. But yes. the Washington Post called a nation-changing social agenda was erected, and okay. then it was torn down almost immediately, so- as if you know. And that is affecting millions of people in Maryland.
1: So, with, because you all are on fire, with one minute left, we know that there is a march happening. Please tell our listeners what this march is, when it's going to happen, why they should be there.
5: On March the 2nd, 2024, 38 state campaigns across this nation are going to hold simultaneous mass poor and low wage workers state house assemblies. We are going to Annapolis between the hours of 10 and two. We are going to march. We are going to, we are, it's, the out prevailing narrative is to wage war on the, to stop waging war on the poor, but not poverty. I mean, stop waging war, war on the poor and wage war on poverty to um, promote, um, which promotes racism, anti-immigration bias, and, um, We want to demand an end to poverty and related injustices, and we can. Our website. uh, You can reach us by uh, going to mdppc.org/slash/march2. mdppc.org/slash/march2. This is how we can be reached because.
1: Okay, Hello. well, Linnell and David, thank you so much. Again, What's at Stake listeners, we have wrapped up another ep- epic episode. Thank you to our guests, um, the legal team with the ACC, Jenny Colgate, Baba Singor, Linnell Fall, and David Mott. You all have been wonderful. Thanks to executive producer, Miss Verna Avery-Brown. This program is engineered by Michael Nacella, and I'm Denise Young. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. parlor is the original woman's radio collective wednesdays from 3 to 5 p.m the best music divas on radio at 89.3 fm and sophiesparlor.blogspot.com
4: the secure dc crime bill is likely to be passed by dc city council on january 23rd Legislation that will allow police to detain and identify people for fare evasion, stop people from mask wearing if they believe they're quote unquote suspicious, create quote unquote drug free zones that make gathering in certain areas illegal for up to five days and make possible more impunity for police. Join PACA, Pan-African Community Action, on Wednesday, January 24th for the Assata-Sakur Study Group session, the D.C. Crime Bill and the War on Chocolate City, where we will unpack the implications of this crime bill and discuss how community control is the democratic path to adequate solutions for addressing the root causes that lead to crime, poverty, addiction, food insecurity, inadequate housing, and capitalist exploitation. That's the D.C. Crime Bill and the War on Chocolate City, Wednesday, January 24th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Black Workers and Wellness Center. 2500 Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue Southeast DC. There is an online option. To find out more, go online to Pacapower.org slash events. WPFW is your station for Jazz and Justice, building a better world one broadcast at a time.
6: The best in live music entertainment is coming to Bethesda Theater. Peebo Bryson, the legendary voice of love, for two big shows on Friday, January 26th at 8.30 p.m. and Saturday, January 27th at 8 p.m. Celebrate legend Bob Marley at the annual One Love Birthday Bash featuring popular reggae band I&I Rhythm on Saturday, February 3rd at 8 p.m. Celebrate more love at the Quiet Storm Valentine Celebration featuring live performances of classic love songs on Saturday, February 10th at 8 p.m. Peebo Bryson on January 26th and 27th. Bob Marley, the birthday bash on February 3rd and Quiet Storm Valentine Celebration on February 10th. More info and tickets at BethesdaTheater.com. WPFW is a proud media partner with Bethesda Theatre. I'm DJ Underdog, inviting you to join me on Black Star Radio Mondays, 10 p.m. to midnight, beginning April 19th. We share the hottest sounds out of Africa from all corners of the motherland and bring you the sound of the African underground to DC and all points in between. Together, we'll explore African genres from Ama Piano, Genge, Coupe de Calle, Zouk, Lingala, Ethiopian hits, Sukus, Nigerian hits, Egyptian hits, and Afro beats. The destination is Africa, Africa. Africa and the mission is oneness. Journey with us Mondays at 10 p.m right here on WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Peace. peace, peace, peace.
1: Hello, this is Margaret Kimberly. I'm producer and host of Black Agenda Radio. I'm delighted to announce that beginning November 29th, our show will air Wednesdays at 6 p.m., between shows produced by two other revolutionary black women, Human Rights and Justice, hosted by Inkichi Taifa at 5 p.m., and Konbit Lakai, hosted
5: by Eugenia Charles at 7 p.m. Wednesdays beginning at